for the glory of old state, for her founder strong and great, for the future that we wait. Raise the song, raise the song. Where else would you rather be? I'm Paul Clifford, CEO of the Penn State Alumni Association. Welcome to the people of Penn State. Each week on the podcast, you can expect to hear the voices of Penn Staters talking about what they're passionate about, and you can expect to feel the pride and the power of the Penn State Network. The People of Penn State podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Subscribe and give us a rating. Ratings and reviews help others find these great stories. Well, today we're going to talk to Catherine Politel. She is the director of the nationally recognized Ruth Matthews Berger Women with Children program at Misericordia University with over 20 years of experience as a clinician, case manager, treatment provider, and administrator both in clinical treatment settings and over the last 17 years within higher education at both their Sinus College and Misericordia University. She holds a BA in sociology as well as an MED in counselor education from right here at the Pennsylvania State University, as well as an MBA from Alvernia. Catherine is a Pennsylvania State Certified Addictions Counselor and Professional Counselor. She has been featured in both regional and national news with The Today Show, NPR StoryCorp, Inside Higher Ed, New York Times, and the Associated Press, and on and on and on for her work with the Burger Women with Children program. Let's go ahead and welcome Catherine Politel to the podcast. Catherine, how are you today? I'm wonderful, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be here with you today, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Let's get it started right at the very beginning. How'd you become a Penn Stater? Um, well, I would say at birth. <laughs> it's part of our birthright as a Politel family. Um, very happy to say that my mom is also a Penn State alum. She graduated in 1966. And I think that really just set the course for all of us. We're, there are four of us uh, kids. And um, you know, really just kind of laid the groundwork there when we were growing up, just learning about Penn State, um, knowing how important it was to her as a university and her degree. And it really served as the inspiration for all of us to follow in her her path. So I'm proud to say that, uh, you know, going to Penn State is something that we all pride ourselves on as a family and as part of our educational legacy. So, Well, let's go ahead and give them a shout out. A shout out to Edwina, uh, your brother Rich, your brother John, uh, Elizabeth, your sister, who was a national champion when she was here at Penn State as a women's rugby player, uh, sister-in-law Reagan Palfi. Uh, now Rafe, Reagan Palfi Politel and your other sister-in-law, Christy Politel. Uh, really, the the blue and white runs deep in your family. Yes, even even on in terms of marriage and things, it seems to be a requirement, which is fine by us. It's just the the more the merrier. But yeah, we've had all collectively, we've all had a tremendous experience at Penn State and all participated in different things while we were there and. Um, when you put us all together, we just we just have a wonderful time, not only reminiscing, but celebrating Penn State University. Well, myself, having had some friends that played rugby and I see your brother and your and your sister both participated in rugby. Those family gatherings have to be uh, pretty enthusiastic when you get together. 
Yeah, I don't know if it speaks to maybe a little bit of a violent tendency in our family, but um, I, for one, kind of bruise like a peach, so I sort of get out of the way. But um, my sister is is happy to share with my brother all the time, though, that she does have a national championship, uh, a medal. And um, although he subsequently went on to have a career as the coach for West Point Military Academy with the rugby oh, wow. uh, organization there. So he, in his own right, has done a stellar job as well. But, um, yeah, a lot to celebrate. But, yeah, we're, we're a pretty animated crew. Well, your your family was involved in a lot of different things at Penn State. You were as well. Talk about your student experience and some of the things that you were active in when you were here at Penn State. Yeah, well, my my experience was tremendous. You know, from from the start, I think that um, I just felt right at home when I entered Penn State, and um, you know, focusing on my major in sociology, I was uh, really committed, of course, to my academics. Um, I was in the University Scholars Program at that time, now Schreier Honors College, but uh, did that and then also was in a number of organizations and groups affiliated with my soci major, sociology club, psych club. Um, and then also, I, I will say too, I think that just the overall experience at Penn State, um, just being able to participate in all sorts of activities uh, throughout the trajectory of those four years uh, was just rather incredible. Um, you know, being at Penn State in the mid-90s, it was just a really neat time, um, just for everything from music to, um, you know, entertainment and the arts. Um, and, and I will also say that because of my, I guess, my educational status, um, I was housed with a person that was completely random. I, I chose not to pick a roommate when I went to Penn State, and I was—I had the um, incredible good fortune of being housed with a Fulbright Scholar from Cyprus, who to this day is one of my best friends, is more like a sister to me, and uh, we ended up living together for the four years that we were there, um, and just made some amazing memories and, and made some incredible friendships. So, just you know, overall, just I would say it's an all-encompassing experience. Um, and I also did, I, I will also note that my first higher ed job and experience was also at Penn State. I would actually work for the FitCap program um, with, and with student orientation as an orientation leader for freshmen. And um, I loved it. I think it was just such a great experience to meet incoming freshmen and to work with them, even when I was a student myself, um, you know, and really engaging with the students as they were coming into Penn State and having that experience. So you know, just kind of involved all the way around. And, and it really, um, I think, informed a lot of what my next steps were going to be in a career. You know, before we dive into your career, which is um, extensive and, and storied and you're, you're having a great impact, you, um, you have some pretty interesting Penn State stories, right? Some of which, you know, kind of happened uh, by happenstance, right? Being uh, put in the same room as a Fulbright Scholar from Cyprus, right? That's, that's random selection. Uh, but you also made some of your own opportunities. You have a great Joe Paterno story that I hope you will, that I hope you might share with us. Yeah, well, it actually, it, it is connected to um, my roommate too from Cyprus. We actually were um, planning on leaving for the, for the semester. I want to say that we were both juniors at the time and, um, you know, she was going back to Cyprus. It was over the end of the fall, fall semester. And when we have that Christmas holiday break. And she really wanted to get a football signed by Joe Paterno before she returned to Cyprus that she could give to her brother. And um, I said, you know, that's a great idea. And I'm going to do the same thing for my brother. And let's go and drop off footballs. And that's what you did. And then you guess you picked them up after he would sign them. Well, it's just by sheer coincidence. Um, and, and by the way, my roommate was sort of this demure, like really um, pretty sophisticated person, really kind of held back. 
we were coming into the parking lot and she spotted Joe Paterno in the parking lot. And I've never seen this woman drive as fast as she did, but we looped around really quickly and literally jumped out of the car and she approached Joe Paterno. I'm like, okay, well, if we're doing this, we're doing this. Um, we grabbed our footballs and we went right up to him and, um, we ended up having an amazing conversation with him, probably lasted almost a half an hour, talked about everything from Cyprus and, and how much he knew he was so well-versed on just even that and the Island of Cyprus. Um, and, and then everything in terms of where we were from and just our academic, uh, goals. And, um, he talked extensively about Wilkes-Barre, uh, which is, you know, the area I'm from up here in Northeastern Pennsylvania and a lot of the amazing football players that came out of this area and their families and, and how much he really enjoyed spending a lot of quality time. He said in the kitchens of, of Wilkes-Barre in a lot of homes where he was maybe recruiting or meeting with football players. And so it was just a really remarkable time and experience. We still have our footballs, of course, which are signed, but it, it's a memory that's imprinted. And, and really, when there were no cameras or no smartphones, it's just an interaction that was just completely pure and um, really inspiring. So it's one that I will always remember for sure. I'm sure he mentioned Mike Munchak, Bucky Greeley, um, Jimmy Cephalo, all from the Pittston, Natticoke, Wilkes-Barre, Scranton area, all in, the, in the, that area. Paul, maybe I think exactly in that order too. <laughs> and he really did. He was, he had a, a, a great fondness for this region. So it was just really nice to hear all of that from him. No matter your profession or what stage of your career you're at, Alumni Career Services is here to help you. Located on the University Park campus, Alumni Career Services is available to all Penn State alumni, regardless of location. Our Alumni Career Services team is there to forge connections with one of the largest alumni bases in the world. They offer events and webinars to help advance your career and provide job search resources that allow you to find the career that's just right for you. Learn more about career services by going to alumni.psu.edu backslash career. This is the People of Penn State. I'm Paul Clifford, and I'm joined by Catherine Politel. She is the director of the Ruth Matthews Berger Women with Children program. Before we dive into the program, talk about kind of the, the origin of your interest in this work. Well, you know what? I think that if I were to um, rewind the tape and go back to Penn State and my own educational experience, I, I really focused my undergrad in sociology, but there was sort of a focus on criminology and, and really started to learn through that process what it really, you know, the impact of society and the demographics that we were looking at at the time really um, seemed to open my eyes to what a lot of people, especially in poverty, were facing. And just these outcomes that were, you know, pretty stark and really thinking about how could I make a difference? How could I make an impact? Not only with this degree that I was working toward, but where was I going to take that and how was I going to employ that in work? And um, it, it actually helped to navigate me to the, the master's degree I worked on while I was at Penn State too. Um, and that was in counselor education because I decided that I wanted to combine the knowledge that I had received and the background I had with uh, an actual applicable way of helping people. And so by doing this, I was able to sort of combine the two degrees and it really helped to uh, create a trajectory for myself that landed me in working in a number of different types of environments. Um, I actually started my career in corrections, uh, working in a prison system 
and really learning, um, I think, in a monumental way, what the impact of the criminal justice system was having on people and what people were struggling with. And the common denominator seemed to be this whole theme around poverty. Um, and so over time, I think I, I discovered that I really wanted to, to make a deeper impact. Um, and it was left when I actually left the job at the prison. One of the inmates actually had said to me when I was leaving, you know, no matter what you do in your future, in your career, try to prevent this. And I think he meant what had happened to him. Try to try to do what you can to prevent this. And it really stuck with me. Um, and so really, when I when I think about all the work that I've done over the years, I, I, I really think it's been in that same vein of uh, trying to make an impact, trying to make a difference. And, and lo and behold, I ultimately end up in higher education, working directly with, with families who are in poverty, working directly with women and children who really want to improve their lives. And one of the first days I was here at Misericordia with this program, we were helping a mom move in. And one of her sons, who was only five years old at the time, actually approached me. And he said to me, um, when I grow up, I'm going to jail. And I looked at him and it was sort of in disbelief. I couldn't believe he actually had said that. And I said to him, I asked him, can you say that again? And he said, when I grow up, I'm going to go to jail. And I realized at that moment, um, I said, first, we're going to talk with your mom. Let's talk about this, because I think that maybe there are other ideas that we have in mind for you that would be much better. Um, and we certainly addressed it. But that was to me this sort of pivotal full circle moment where I landed in a place that is about five miles from the, the prison that had started in, in my career so many years ago. And here I am with this five-year-old boy who's telling me that's going to be his outcome. And I think at that moment, it was just like the lights all went on. Like, this is where I'm meant to be. This is what I'm meant to do. And all of the education, the training, and everything that I had done in the, in the past was, was all purposeful. It had an intent to do what I could do right now. And that's be the director of this program that I've been now, you know, at for almost nine years. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's dive into that. Share a little bit about um, the work that you do at the Burger Women with Children program. Yeah. So uh, it's actually a pretty distinct program. We're one of only eight of our kind in, in the United States, but we're pretty distinct in that we are a program that offers um, four, four years of free housing and a lot of ancillary supports, very holistic approach to helping single mothers who are living in poverty access their four-year degrees in higher education by being able to come here and reside here for four years with their children. And so we accept moms of any age um, from all across the United States, although we do some priority placement for women in Pennsylvania, um, and they can bring up to three children with them and they reside together on our lower campus and they go to school. They go to school together. Um, they go, you know, the children go to daycare if they're a little bit younger. Um, but mom gets to concentrate on getting her four-year degree, um, really working on professional development and those sort of post-baccalaureate skills that you need in order to secure a professional career. And what they do once they graduate, after we do this whole sort of two-generation holistic approach with both the mom and the child for those four years, we help a lot of families not only leave the poverty line, but stay out. And so it's a, it's a remarkable uh, experience for them. It's certainly very rewarding for us because we know we're making a huge difference in their lives. Um, but we subsequently are also making a huge difference in the trajectory of their children's lives, too. Um, so what we're seeing is that we're breaking the intergenerational cycle of poverty two generations at a time. And um, it's just, it's a really incredible experience. It's a wonderful program. Um, it, it's certainly one that I'm very passionate about. And um, it's starting to garner a lot more attention, I think primarily because 
of two major reasons. The first, because I think student parents or parenting students are, are surfacing more than ever in the United States and are seeking out educational opportunities. And then I also think that as a country, we're starting to respond to those who are in poverty in a more aggressive, holistic way that we need to do more in order to resolve this issue in our own demographics, in our own states and in our own country. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been a driving force for not only Misericordia University in terms of something that we do that's very mission centered, but it's also an example of a model and a program that, frankly, the model actually I, is something I developed when I was at Penn State in my master's program. Um, so it was something that was able to take and, and really bring into this program and inject it into the program. And, and what we've seen are, are really remarkable outcomes at this point with a lot of success attached to it. So I'm really proud of that. So I've been in higher education for 25 years. This is the first such program of this kind that I have heard of. Um, and so that's why I was really excited to talk to you about this today. First, I think it's a testament to the power of education and the power of access to education, kind of being the, the silver bullet that lifts people out of um, the circumstances that they might find them in, right? And it's, it's, it's really, so it's, it's fascinating from a number of aspects. First aspect I want to dive into is we think about just in regular higher education, 18-year-old coming to your campus and all the resources that we need to put around that individual to be successful, um, to be successful in navigating, you know, the landscape of higher education. Now, bring a couple kids with you to that scenario. What are the services that you have to put around these families in order to get those two generations through this four-year experience? in a successful way? It's a great question. And I think it starts with what you just touched on, which is how do we, how do we change the landscape of higher education? And I think I'm very committed to that in terms of, you know, how do we, we talk a lot about DEI now, right? We talk about diversity, we talk about inclusion, we talk about equity, but I think we also need to talk about access. And I think for us, the access point matters. Um, and so from the door, we're doing everything we can in order to best uh, provide and enable the, the process to occur for these families. And so that means, you know, we waive admission fees for our families because we know they're in poverty. We don't want a barrier at the door. You know, we're looking at a, a full assessment on their needs so that we can understand what both mom and the child or children all need as they're entering in. You know, it's not unusual, Paul, for us to have moms that enter our program and all they have is a car and a garbage bag of clothing. Um, we recruit, I recruit from non-traditional spaces, domestic violence centers, homeless shelters, places where you have families and you have moms, especially who are trying to raise their children, but in these precarious circumstances. And what can we do to, to drive this process uh, in, a, in a more holistic, better way for them? Um, so that means meeting them where they are and then building them up as they go um, and certainly empowering them. I think that's one of the big key elements to this is that we're taking a deep dive with our families and we're asking them to trust us and to believe in us and we're going to work with them. And so we have a community living environment that's sort of part of our model. Um, you can't hide in our program. You are a student. If you're a student, you're going to be working on everything from your mental health and your and your well-being to do you have food and are you food secure and making sure there's access to healthy food. 
Um, children and the moms all have uh, all the amenities of the university uh, at their disposal. So if there's anything that we can do and provide as an institution, we're going to provide it. So speech language therapy, for example, for a child is something that we will we will certainly connect a child to. We also use an array of community services around us, too. So it's sort of the blending of all of these different um, offerings that come together to kind of patch together this amazing sort of way of holistically addressing both the mom's needs and the child's needs as they go. And, um, and we do emphasize a lot of the growth of the child, because if you think about it developmentally, most of our children are under the age of 12. And so if they're here with us for four years, you're talking about a lot of development and growth. Um, and so I've deeply committed to, I do a lot of grant writing in my role, a lot of fundraising in my role, because that's what we depend on for funding. But um, we look at what are the child's needs and how do we create family enrichment around that? And so we fund extracurricular activities every single year for every child. I've made swimming a requirement. Children have to learn how to swim by the time mom graduates. We encourage the mom to learn as well. Most of the time they do. Um, we've done a lot in terms of, you know, children's libraries and play areas and early literacy programming. Um, you know, you name it. We have a number of Misericord University student groups that also help to um, work with the children and work with the families as well. So pretty much anything you can think of, whether it's tutoring, student services, our counseling, you name it, we're going to build all of that around the family and we're going to do it for four years. And then that last year, we're going to work with them to help transition them and help them to become successful in the next step. So nobody leaves until we have a full comprehensive plan for both the mom and the child. And we see that there's a lot of success in that. We have 100% post-baccalaureate professional placement for all of our moms if they go through our program. That's amazing. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's dig into some of those numbers around your program, right? You said one student can bring three children with them, right? Up to three yes. children. Yes. What is the capacity of your program? How many students can you have in this program? How many children can you be serving at any one time? Yep, so we've been growing and, and the good news is we're growing right now. So um, as of this year and right now in this summer, we're going to be expanding and we're adding a fourth house. So all of our program is built into four homes. We believe that home environments are the ideal situation for moms and children. And so we have four community living environments, four large homes on our lower campus. And at full capacity, we'll be able to support 20 single mother families with up to three children. And, um, you know, and we accept moms from across the country. And then certainly with the children between the ages of two through eight years of age upon admission, and then up to 12 years of age by the time mom graduates and mom can be of any age. So we've had moms who are in their mid forties and they're coming to us and entering our program, trying to get their education and, and getting a secure job. Um, we have moms who are traditional high school students that are coming right in, uh, into college, like a, a regular traditional freshmen. So, you know, it's a, it's a medley of uh, moms and ages and, and children, and it, we become this very large sort of family unit. Um, and then we just drive this whole process forward in that, in that way. So, yeah. Yeah. This, it's, it's an amazing story that you're, you're able to tell. It's, it's interesting to me as somebody who's worked in public higher education, my entire career, um, and when we talk about uh, when we talk about access to education, right, that's at the core of public higher education. And yet uh, these programs seem to be based more so at private institutions. Is there uh, is, is there maybe a reason in your mind as to why um, a private institution might be better suited for something like this? 
Well, you know, I think that's a, that's also a good question. I think that part of it has to do with when you have a smaller institution like a Misericordia, we're very mission-based in terms of if there's been a sort of a religious organization or group, like the Sisters of Mercy right. are religious-based, but they are very mission-driven. And part of their mission is to educate women and children. So that's always been a driving force since they were back in Ireland and, and then came over to the United States. Um, and so I think the, the sort of the, at the roots of that, you see sort of a mission that's fostered into the growth of a program like this because it's responding to a very specific need that attaches to it. So, and I also think that sometimes these initiatives are start, they start small. And that's because, again, the capacity and, you know, what can you afford to do? But I think sometimes the, that sort of smaller concentrated effort becomes the example, which in this case it has, um, to what you can role model and what could become scalable and then more impactful, perhaps in a through a larger lens. You know, so if you're looking at other you know public institutions or you're looking at you know even larger community colleges, places where you might be able to say, okay, well we can do this too, but we we have to replicate it a little differently. But we want to also look at what you're doing. So I, I think that's probably what it is. Um, yeah, it's sort of a little bit more mission centric. Yeah in that regard. And so that you have a sort of a driving force with an organization backing it up. Yeah. There's numerous opportunities to work with this population, right? You can, you've, you've talked about how you're a practitioner and a clinician. Um, you know, you can work with these in, in a variety of settings and capacities, private practice, public service, you choose to work through higher education. What is it about higher ed that makes this an ideal setting for your work? You know, I think higher education for me, at least, um, it was a, it was a great sort of environment and platform to really um, understand that you can really impact a person and you have four years to do it. You always sort of have this nice timeline, a generous timeline where you're really able to work with a person and, and really have an impact. And so as a clinician, when I worked one on one with students, I really saw that evolution. I really saw that growth and I could take time with that person. And, and I really could see a lot of changes and improvements in a lot of circumstances that I felt were really beneficial. And I think over time, I realized that could be broadened to something that's more programmatic and where we could say, OK, look, we could take this approach. We have a nice, generous timeline again, but let's do it in a two gen type of format. Let's provide opportunity for so many women that would historically not even considered this as an option. And let's open the doors to that and, and really bring their children with them uh, so that the children also experience this, too. It's not unusual for our, our kids to say, you know, my mom goes to college and I'm going to as well. And that's exactly what's happened. Um, so I think that that helped. I think the attraction to seeing that you had a, a timeline and you have a lot of hope in that, um, a lot of adolescent sort of phase uh, students who are trying to figure themselves out and really trying to kind of mature up and evolve as they go and self-actualize into not only their degree, but the, then their career. Um, I just think it gave a, a lot of ample opportunity to really consider how you could foster that type of growth and then and be able to use that as sort of a springboard to do it even more so for, for people who may not necessarily have thought this could have been a part of their path. Yeah. You talk about um, how much fundraising and grant writing are a part of your day to day. Um, and uh, those of us who do that as part of our career, right, we understand like the case study and and storytelling and how important that is to that line of work. So what is the, like, what is the success story that you tell when you're sitting down from a donor 
to talk to them that inspires them to become supportive of your program? Kind of what is that, um, that one that stands out to you as this is the reason why we're here? Yeah, I mean, I would love to say I have a collection of them, right? I mean, just because there's just so many amazing, amazing, impactful stories. But one that really does resonate with me personally and, and sticks out is a woman who, uh, by the name of Asia Thompson, she's very public facing about her whole experience. Um, but Asia arrived to the program uh, back in 2013, 2014, and she arrived with a car and two children. And that's about it. And the car we were lucky that the car got here um, and she came from a homeless shelter in New Jersey called Homefront. And she basically said, I fled a domestic violence situation. I had to get out with my children and I needed help. And I, but I really believe that I could get my education. I believe I'm an academic. I think I can really do this. And, you know, I worked very closely with her for the next four years, along with her two children. And definitely there's so, so many challenges along the way, but Asia, rose to the top and really just graduated top of her class. She became an advocate. Um, she actually spoke on Capitol Hill her senior year. I went with her. Um, we were part of an NPR project for storytellers with NPR. And she actually spoke in front of um, Senator um, Vilsack, actually uh, Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack um, on Capitol Hill. And just, we had this remarkable experience and she found her voice in this whole process. And so her children grow and, and they watch her grow. And she subsequently graduated from Misericordia University and then went on to New York Law and went to law school and um, is now a practicing attorney for the state of New Jersey um, as a prosecutor. And actually, I think at this point, too, an advocate and working for um, results, which is another sort of incubator that helps to um, advocate for those who are in poverty, who are fleeing domestic violence, literally her experience. And so, uh, you know, and she's able to take that on a national level. So just looking at how you could go from homeless, not sure what's going to happen next, food insecure, home insecure, not knowing where you're going to go with children. And then to see four years later, and then with that trajectory to see this person, um, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible experience to witness. It's certainly humbling to see you know, how a person could, could really dig in deep and, and really make a real impact. And now she's advocating and helping others. So it's that full circle, that full circle moment. And so, yeah, I think it's really inspirational to know that if you give people a true opportunity and you stick by them, they're going to, they're going to blow the roof off of whatever expectations you had in the first place. And they're going to, they're going to keep sailing on. So yeah, I mean, I'm incredibly proud of, of her and I think, and she's just one of, of many fine examples of the achievements of our, of our women. So. Earlier in our conversation, you talked about your program still being in growth mode, right? Four homes on the lower campus, uh, 20 plus families impacted by the program. What does the future look like? What is, what's next and on the horizon for the Burger Women with Children program? Well, I think in terms of in-house and, and for us, it's, it's just about that internal growth and really refining ourselves and, and bringing in more families, which we're always actively doing and, and making sure that we provide real opportunities for women who are seeking us out and really would like to get their education completed. Um, but also we have been asked on two fronts. There are two sort of simultaneous things going on that I think we're really proud of as well. The one is that two years ago, um, Governor Wolf um, 
basically found out about us. And it was really through um, DHS and the secretary at the time, Teresa Miller, along with State Senator uh, Lisa Baker, had done some site visits here and really saw what we were doing with our program and our, our moms. And I think they brought it back to the attention of the governor. And lo and behold, he announced that he wants to start this new initiative statewide that is going to look at our model and our program and replicate it in the state. And so he announced this and it was, you know, big news for us, but certainly with funding to follow it, um, you know, 2.5 million to start and to really start to initiate this process. Now, COVID certainly slowed that down a bit, unfortunately, but but at this point it is starting to um, come back up and it is, uh, we're part of, we're actually considered exemplars uh, for the state of Pennsylvania in their learning network for student parents or parenting students. And uh, so we're very involved in that and I'm really excited to see where that's headed, but it's certainly with at least a dozen higher ed institutions across the state that are, are these sort of original 12 that are looking at what we're doing. Um, and we're part of that conversation. And then uh, also at the same time, and, and on some level kind of coincidentally, um, the Robin Hood Foundation, which is based out of New York City, made the decision that they wanted to step beyond their catchment area of New York and launch a national pilot uh, where they asked several states to get involved in communities where we could come up with sustainable solutions for poverty for families um, and, and to really think about how we could do that. And so um, we had gotten involved again and proposed what we do, but to kind of branch out and scale it up. And Robin Hood came back and said, we're going to put, you know, 1.7 million into this. We're going to back you. Uh, please lead this and create something new for Northeastern Pennsylvania over a five county footprint. And let's see what you can do with this model and let's make it more of a multi-sector approach. And I'm really pleased to say we're about to launch a new program here this summer that will be called the Parent Pathways Program of Northeastern Pennsylvania largely based on the work that we do here, but with partners all over this, this five county footprint. And um, it's, it's just wonderful to see so many people activated that want to work collaboratively, even other higher ed institutions, just all kind of converging together to say, how can we create a sustainable response to this poverty issue in our region? And knowing that if we can do this together, that we may actually really be able to make that sustainable impact. So it's been great. It's been a lot of work, but it's been great. And, and I'm really pleased that we're sort of at the epicenter of that. It's amazing worth. Catherine, we have a lot of Penn Staters that live in that region of Pennsylvania um, and a lot of people that listen to the podcast. If people are interested in getting more information about your program, where can they find that? I think the best way to find us is at the Misericordia University webpage, website, and just go to misericordia.edu backslash WWC. We come right up. Women with Children program is right there, um, you know, and that's an easy way. Or you can contact me directly at just kpolitel at misericordia.edu as another quick and easy way to reach me as well. So and all of our contact information is housed there, too. Um, so everything from our online brochure to even even just conversations on pod podcasts that we do. So just to gain more familiarity in our work and our impact, I think, is, um, you know, an important thing to do. So. Yeah, we welcome anybody with an inquiry or even a recommendation for a mom that might be looking for this opportunity. We welcome it. Debuted as the first official publication of the Penn State Alumni Association a mere 111 years ago, the Penn Stater Magazine is an exclusive benefit for members of the Penn State Alumni Association. 
The magazine features captivating and informative stories of Penn State and Penn Staters and is delivered bi-monthly to members. The Penn Stater is now also available online at pennstatermag.com. The site includes the contents of the print editions of the magazine, as well as bonus content, including extended Q&As, features that couldn't fit in the print version, and more. Alumni Association members can access the site by logging in with their email address and their Alumni Association ID number, which appears in the footer of emails they receive from the association. If you're not a member of the Alumni Association, we invite you to join us today to access the Penn Stater and our numerous other member benefits by visiting alumni.psu.edu backslash membership. Now let's get back to today's show. This is the People of Penn State. I'm Paul Clifford. I'm joined by Catherine Polidal. She is the director of the Ruth Matthews Berger Women with Children program at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania. We like to have some fun at the end of our podcast with the lightning round. But before we get to that, you shared your Joe Paterno story, but your family also had an interesting interaction with our current head coach, James Franklin. Would you mind sharing, uh, would you mind sharing that story? I wouldn't mind at all. Um, yeah, so uh, several years ago, um, so we're, I think around 2017, um, unfortunately, my mom was battling breast cancer. And, you know, we were certainly very, very concerned and, and worried, and we didn't know what was really next. And so, um, you know, through, we know that my mom is a huge Penn State fan, but she really, really loves Penn State athletics, particularly football and basketball. I think she she feels, I think, like she's the mom to most of these students. <laughs> but um she follows it religiously and, and loves Coach Franklin. And uh, we thought, you know what, well, maybe there's a way for us to maybe somehow access Coach Franklin and maybe we could get him to to maybe send a postcard or something like, good luck, we, we're thinking of you. Or, you know, just to kind of sort of champion my mom along a little bit, knowing that this would be a huge boost to her morale. And um, I happened to be with my parents visiting and it was the 4th of July that year. And, you know, that's a national holiday. I think most of us are already looking forward to some downtime spending with family and things like that. And I was at the house and the phone rings. It was in the morning and uh, the phone rings and I hear my mother talking and laughing and as if maybe she was something she knew or I thought maybe a family member or something. And she was on for a good half hour at least. And, uh, you know, she got off the phone and she sort of looked a little bit dazed, a little puzzled. And she she just started laughing and she just said, oh, my God, she goes. Coach Franklin, James Franklin just called me and they had this, a lovely conversation. And he just, he took the time on a national holiday when I'm sure he was extremely busy (laughs) with everything that he had to do at that time. And he, and he did that. And I just think that that's a really remarkable thing to know that, you know, it's not just a coach, it's way more. And I was just really, um, I get emotional, but it was a really proud moment and it meant a lot to all of us. So I know she was extremely thankful for that, and um, I'm, we're really thankful that she's fine now and, and doing really well, but it was a really, I just thought that was a, a really touching thing to do. And that's, again, no cameras, there's no attention there, there's nothing else except just a generous offer to take a little time, even away from his own family, to talk to mine. That's an amazing story, and it's not surprising coaches doing things like that all the time. and. 
You know, it's why we call our podcast the People of Penn State Podcast. It's because it's the people that make this such a special place. That's right. 100%. All right. Lightning <laughs> round. You ready? Oh, uh, yep. All right. Go for favorite, it. Favorite class at Penn State? Favorite class would probably be in my master's program, um, an adolescent development class with uh, Kathleen Bieschke, Dr. Bieschke. I believe that's, I think I'm saying her name right. She was amazing. Yes. Wonderful class. I learned a ton. Wonderful. Yes. Uh, and she is she's still here at the university. Nice. Um, and just uh, an amazing, amazing team member here. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be and why? Whoa. Um, I, I would probably... I, this is self-indulgent, but I'd say Dolly Parton. Okay. All right. <laughs> and I just because I love her, I just think she's a wonderful human being, and she's a national treasure. And uh, and she came from poverty, and look what she's done. So I just think she's a, a huge inspiration. I'd love to have a conversation with her. <laughs> Absolutely, does a lot of work with children and literacy. Imagination um, Library. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Your most unusual we are moment, maybe um, an unusual or unexpected place where you either saw Penn Stater and yelled, we are, or you were traveling and heard we are. Yeah, I have a really interesting one. And it, it actually uh, ties to 2006. I'll never forget this. 2006, we were at the Orange Bowl right. and Penn State. This was that crazy game where we went into three overtimes. I was there. You were there. I was not okay. because I was in India at the time, actually. So it's a little outrageous, but I'm in India and I'm like trying to contact my, my brother and we're going back and forth. I'm like, what's the score? I'm literally at in Agra looking at the Taj Mahal, you know, this wonder of the world or whatever. And I'm looking at that and really the whole time I'm preoccupied with what the score was. <laughs> I'm like, and I kept saying like, oh, we're in first overtime. We're in second overtime. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what's going on? We're in a third overtime. I'm like, God bless you, Kevin Kelly, wherever you are. Thank you for that win. But I will say it was just hysterical. I was, I was so happy that we won. And as I was leaving Agra, I was actually in like a kind of like an SUV type of vehicle. And, you know, it was crowded everywhere in very crowded street. And I, out of the corner of my eye, I see this guy walking along the street in Agra, in India, with a blue Penn State jacket on, just Penn State on the back. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to do something here. And I just yelled, I just yelled, we are, you know, and he, he turned around so fast and he just screamed, Penn State. I have never seen such a look of joy on someone's face so instantaneously. And he yells, we won. And I'm like, thank God, you know, but that, that to me was certainly the most incredible we are. I, I think I've ever experienced and one I would never have predicted. That's, that's amazing. That was the longest night of my life. Um, <laughs> leaving, leaving Dolphin Stadium at three in the morning. It was, uh, yeah, it was, it was crazy, but worth it, right? Worth it totally. for the end. So how about your favorite Penn State sport? Uh, of course, it's going to, I'm going to say football, but I have to be careful because remember, I also need to say rugby right. <laughs> or I might hear it. So I would say that would be another one too. And, and, and sort of the trifecta in that, of course, all big 10 sports at Penn State, but also the basketball. We just love yeah. it too. So, yeah. That's awesome. And how about your favorite flavor of creamery ice cream? Oh, man. Uh, that's hard, too. Um, I'd probably say coconut chip. That's my go-to. Okay. So I love it. So, But any, pretty much anything to the left or to the right in the coolers at the creamery, I'm, I'm game for all of it. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Well, Catherine, thank you for joining us on the People of Penn State podcast. You know, our alma mater says, may our lives swell thy fame. And you are certainly 
swelling thy fame of your alma mater with the work that you're doing at Misericordia. So keep up the great work and thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. It's been an honor. We are. <laughs> Penn State. I want to thank our producer, Vincent Longaro, our guest relations coordinator, Mara Ryan, for all of their great work on the people of Penn State. If you like this episode, I hope you'll subscribe to the People of Penn State podcast and your favorite podcast app of choice. And while you're there, give us a rating and drop us a review. Help us spread the word and share the stories of these great Penn Staters. If you're a member of the Alumni Association, thank you so much for your support. If you're not, what are you waiting for? Go to our website at alumni.psu.edu, and you too can become a member of the world's largest alumni association. Thanks for listening and for all you do for the university, for the glory, and for the future. We are... You know,